I'm Abby Kenny, and you are listening to Upsound. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take a big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner in Kansas City, and today we have Chuck Marone back on the show. What? Great to see you. What? I know. <laughs> yeah, what? we have a surprise special guest, Chuck Marone. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of sad because the Strung Downs podcast, which is which is my podcast, I don't think we've had an episode for like three weeks, and it's been a combination of my traveling and my being ill and all this. But yeah, people are going to be like, I thought he was, you know. What's going on here? So it's cool. Thanks, Abby. Nice to see you. Nice to it's be back. It's nice to see you too. Yeah. Well, you've been doing I, amazing work. Like last week, Happy City. Tristan is just a cool dude. Like I think he's amazing. Yeah, that was so much fun talking with him, and it, it is always fun to have guests on the show, especially especially guests that I haven't met before. So I hopefully we can have him back on. Well, you'll have to meet him in person someday because he's a really smart guy, but he's also really fun. Like I like hanging out with Tristan. He's really cool. Yeah. Well, Tristan, if you're listening, hopefully you will be at CNU and the Strong Towns gathering coming up. When is that? The end of May? End of May. So that will be really exciting. Cool. Well, today we have an article that is a little bit out of my depth, I will uh, admit, but a really interesting conversation that I don't think we've talked about before on this show. This was published in Next City by Cinnamon Jansner. And the article is entitled, How a Deconstruction Company and Salvage Shop Are Keeping Building Materials Out of Landfills. So this article talks about a growing movement towards what is called deconstruction as opposed to demolition of buildings. And it also talks about the partnerships that are being made in this space to streamline the process of salvaging and reusing materials. According to the article in the EPA, demolition is responsible for 90% of debris in the construction and demo industry, which measured at 600 million tons in 2018 alone. So that's a lot of trash. A significant amount of annual debris ends up in landfills. And this deconstructionist approach opts to basically go in and disassemble buildings to salvage parts like Everything from materials that can be reused to things like light fixtures, doors, flooring, windows, and more. This approach is intended to keep trash out of landfills and hopefully give them a new life and is a process that is typically done by hand as opposed to actually tearing down buildings with machinery. In places like Hennepin County, Minnesota, property owners and developers are actually provided with these building reuse grants, which is a way to incentivize the use of salvage materials. So I find this whole this whole topic really interesting. I'm a little out of depth, but it does sound like a no-brainer that we would be reusing buildings, especially if we're looking at demolishing certain areas or if certain certain buildings are just not really usable anymore. I've seen small developers do this. I kind of wonder, this has me thinking about the overall system and the different levels of construction and how this actually works. Chuck, what do you think about 
this whole idea of reusing buildings, do you think that this is something that could be broadly scaled up and streamlined and maybe made the norm in our building building world? Yeah. Well, this is my jam, right? Like I love, I love this. And part of this is like the prudent Midwesterner in me coming out. Like, like, why are we doing this already? Why isn't this done? I wrote an article years ago called Suburban Salvage. And I was asked a question at a public event that I gave of, you know, what's the future of the suburbs? And I said, I think there's three different destinations for the suburbs. I think destination number one is that some of these places will coalesce into coherent neighborhoods and become actual places. And, you know, they will they will survive that way. And number two is that some of these places will fail and just go away. They'll be abandoned and, you know, a la some Detroit neighborhoods that we've seen just kind of slowly disappear over time. So, but I think a lot of them will become salvage material where there will be whole industries of people who just go in and and pluck stuff out of it that has value. And at the time I wrote this, I mean, I, I don't know if you remember this or not, but around the housing crisis in 2008, 2009, there were these huge spikes in commodity costs, particularly in copper. I actually had some copper pipe in my basement and it had just been there for a while. I was doing some stuff and I had extra pipe and I brought it back to Home Depot, but I had had it for like three or four years. So like it was not really returnable in like a receipt standpoint, but I brought it back and they're like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll definitely take it. We'll give you a store credit. And the store credit was like three times what I had paid for this copper pipe because the copper had gone way up in price. Back during that period of time, there were all these vacant homes because of the housing crisis. And one of the things that was happening is that vandals or, or thieves, or I don't know what you'd call them, scavengers, would break into these houses and rip the copper wiring out of the wall because the copper wiring had great value. You could go and recycle it. You could melt it down and sell it. There was a, there was a, a, a black market in a sense for this copper um, because copper had become so very expensive. I think a lot of the building materials we use today are is are crap. Like they're really just not very good. And I know that it's going to make some builders mad, but like the the chipboard stuff that we use instead of plywood. I mean, there's a, a noticeable decline in terms of the overall long term quality of the building materials that we use. That being said, the idea of going in and salvaging. Uh, porcelain fixtures, windows, iron, cabinets, piping, tubing, wiring. Th this is, should be just like a matter of course. This should just be like a matter of what we do. I think the inflationary price of some of this stuff is going to make that a more and more viable business as time goes on. Yes, I I agree with that. And I think that, you know, there's some components of buildings that could probably be reused as is and others that probably need to be recycled into something else. To your point, there's materials that are used that maybe aren't that high quality. And I mean, I think of like windows, for example, you wouldn't want to salvage a 1900s window and then use that in a building um, because it's actually 
you know, not as efficient, but you could recycle the glass and use it for something else. So it almost seems like there's there's multiple layers of systematically how this would work from more finish and architectural material salvage to actual recycling processes that may may in some instances exist. I know that I asked some architects around our firm if this was kind of part of the conversation, and it turns out it is part of the conversation, but it's not you know necessarily the norm everywhere you go or with every material material that people use. But this idea of you know using some kind of material that is made out of recycled pieces is definitely something that seems to be growing in popularity and I know that, you know, a lot of urban neighborhoods in my city, there is this issue of people breaking into buildings and salvaging uh, copper and other, you know, metal materials and basically scrapping them for, for money. But on the other hand, there are small developers that are actually looking at some of these suburban demolition projects and going to these sites and getting parts. There's, uh, there's a um, redevelopment project that's going on in Kansas City, actually over in Independence, Missouri, in the Inglewood, Inglewood's Arts District, where they were actually informed of this large demolition project that was happening over by the freeway out in the suburbs. And they were able to go to that building and salvage all kinds of finishes from like light fixtures to like water fountains and hand railings. I mean, all kinds of stuff to reuse in their building and save a lot of money uh, in the long term. So I wonder if if these kinds of processes can't be streamlined so that smaller scale developers that are very much affected by the rising cost of construction materials can actually maybe cut costs in some ways. I I could see finishes being a little more challenging with larger scale development where they're probably buying all the same fixtures all in bulk, where smaller scale development is more, you know, that they're not going to be needing to buy things in bulk at the same scale and maybe could using architectural salvage would probably add some character and interest to the project anyway. Yeah. So, Around here, and I've, I've run into this in other parts of the country too, I used to think it was just something we did, and now I'm realizing like, no, 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 this is pretty wide scale. Habitat for Humanity has a store that they call the ReStore, the ReStore. Yeah. And re- it's like a restocking place in a sense. And the way that I've seen this work is that people will bring, builders often will bring stuff that has salvage value and they will donate it to Habitat for Humanity. They don't pay you for it. You don't get money for this stuff, but it's a it's a donation. And you know, particularly if you're running a, a business operation, you can have this as a write-off or what have you. There's charitable components of this. And, and there's also just kindness involved. And so we see these kind of things happening. I've also seen places where a building is going to be demolished and they will invite Restore to come in and Habitat for Humanity will mobilize volunteers to go out and visit a site and salvage the things that they can. 
Um, what they will do then is they have a store. Like they set this stuff up on display and you go in and like, I need a door of this dimension. I need a, a set of cabinets. I need some uh, some finish trim. And you can go to the restore and you can get it. And, and what happens is that this becomes a really valuable place for the incremental developer, for the, the the kind of small scale developer, the ones that not is not ordering things necessarily by the truckload for multiple you know manufactured homes or a, a construction you know assembly line process, um, it's a very good place for them to find materials at high quality and also like sub market prices, right? These little custom things, but you have to be good. You, you have to be good as a carpenter, right? Like you have to know what you're doing because you're really like going out to the woodshed and plucking stuff off the pile and making it work. And that is a different, you know, the carpenters that are good at like, I've got the two by fours and like, I just know what to do. And I'm following an assembly line process. They have a different set of skills than the carpenter who's like, I'm going to, I'm going to build a house out of these materials. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> You would need to have a good eye for what you're looking for so that you don't become the, you know, architectural salvage hoarder and just end up with um, a building full of parts that you found that you swear you're going to use, <laughs> which I've seen yeah. before. Well, I, I have a friend who's a carpenter who's really, really good at this, and he will you know, be working on a project and he'll say, all right, I, I was at the restore and I saw these things that came in and it'll work just fine. And he'll go over and, and get these materials and make them work. It makes me excited because, you know, anytime you are competing in a marketplace on home building, you're competing on a, a, a function of materials and labor. And for the small scale developer, we often talk about can we improve the permitting process? Can we uh, shorten the time length that they have to sit with a vacant property while they're working through permitting? Can we free up capital for them in that way? And those things are all very important to kind of level the playing field between the, the big player and the small player. But if we could also find a way to give them an advantage, particularly when it comes to like finished materials, like if we can give them a, a, an advantage where if you are willing to be, in a sense, a small scale scrounger, you can trade a little bit of your nuanced labor in acquiring things for significant reductions in price. Um, now we're leveling the playing field a little bit more. And to me, that's very, very exciting. Well, I think what is brilliant about the restore model is that it actually helps to cut costs of disassembly of buildings, which is something that occurred to me while I was reading this article because this whole idea of disassembling a building versus demolishing a building, it, it starts at the building owner who, if you're demolishing a building, you're probably not trying to pay more to demolish the building. So you'd rather have somebody come in with machines and just knock it down. Um, having somebody, having multiple people come in and dis disassemble parts on, on a building to recycle them if that's being paid by the owner, that's I would think that's unlikely to happen unless there's some kind of incentive involved. And in this case, it's a nonprofit model where volunteers are coming in and salvaging materials, which I think is really smart because if somebody's paying for somebody to disassemble a building, that will likely make those materials more expensive and maybe less competitive for people to reuse or 
you know, more of a niche market, you know, homeowners doing, doing renovations rather than somebody using it, using recycled materials on a project and it being actually a cost benefit, which I think is important. Here's where I struggle though. And I, I thought about this a lot for a lot of developers. This is a pain in the neck. When we're talking about just deconstruction of a house, they're not taking every piece. I mean, this is not like, uh, you know, you're going to use every bone in the buffalo. They go in and they get what they can, they can salvage. And then they do have to ultimately go in and demo what's left and haul it off to the landfill. My sense, and, and I'm, you know, maybe some people will, will, that are closer to this could give me a better number. But my sense is that you would be fortunate to be able to salvage 20% of a house in this way. Let's say somehow you could get up to 50%. I think that would be a, a real, real high bar to clear. You still have to basically demolish 50% of the house. You know, you're taking the thing down. You're, you're not reusing the shingles. You're not reusing a lot of the, the, the plywood. You're, you know, a lot of this stuff is not, you, the sheetrock is not going to be reused. So all this stuff does have to be taken out. For a lot of developers, especially where you can't sell this stuff, where like is a restore thing where you are donating it, that extra layer of coordination and work and liability or what have you to allow a, a cadre of <laughs> the thing that just came to my mind was Jawas. Allow the Jawas to come in and you know get everything out. Star Wars reference. It's a nuisance you don't need. And so a lot of them will, will not do that. And I wonder if there is, and I'm kind of musing out loud here, I wonder if there is a place for some gentle local regulation that would say, if you are going to demo a house, you need to offer it for salvage. You know, you, you need to essentially allow this opportunity for a you know license da, da 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 I mean we can have the whole but basically for Habitat for Humanity or some equivalent organization to come in and make use of this before you just go the easy route and and put it all in landfill. I love that idea. Well, that's not where my gut is. Like I'm not a regulate first kind of person, and I would really I mean I do think that ultimately uh, as material prices continue to increase, there should be some market incentives to do this. But in the meantime, I do feel like a lot of cities would be better off if they could create this kind of economic transaction in their system. And so maybe some short-term regulation, like over the next five years or over the next you know, 10 years, this is, rule is going to be in place uh, so we can create a market for this to happen naturally. I think we might be able to do a lot of good with something like that. Yeah. Well, and this also makes me think about the difference between salvaging parts of a house versus like an abandoned mall because a house may have more, I guess, interior finishes and fixtures that could be reused. But when you think of like an entire mall that's being demolished, that's where it starts to make me think about the actual recycling of like concrete and glass and steel and copper. And these things can be reused. I'm in I don't know how much wood is in that, but wood isn't, I mean, wood can be reused, but it's a little bit different than other materials. So uh, it seems like there's two levels of this. And one is kind of the interior fixtures, finishes, kind of way of salvaging buildings. But then there's this whole other kind of 
broader material recycling that could be happening and maybe is happening and and I'm not aware of it um, in some places. But if, if there were if there's some way of incentivizing that kind of process and having better systems so that we're not just creating new materials, new finishes and fixtures for every new building, that seems like something that the construction industry broadly could build collaboration around. I think the smaller the scale, the closer to people, the the more likely that is to happen. The more it is like big production building, the more that assembly line is in place, uh, the more of a burden that like nuanced thing becomes. And so I, I feel like this is just another reason to kind of have favor for the the bottom up developer, right? The incremental uh, project, the incremental worker, because I, I do think that it will ultimately make better use of things in a way that will build more wealth and and more value in the community. Just south of Brainerd, where I live, there is a company that I came to know because I was you know twenty years ago doing permitting work in for the township south of the city, and they salvage barns. And so this is like old barns. And I grew up on a farm and we had an old barn and I wish that we had salvaged it, uh, but we did not. But, you know, it was the old barn with like the big timbers. And, you know, these guys go in and if someone has an old barn that's collapsed or falling over or going to be taken down, they will go in and deconstruct it. But the, what they're really after is not the paneling or the siding or the the flooring really, they're after these big beams that were put in place from oftentimes the original lumber that was here in Minnesota. Uh, so these are huge, you know, like, you know, six inch by six inch beams or eight inch by eight inch beams that were original logs, you know, taken down from what would have been massive trees and used as, you know, supports across this barn, just beautiful pieces of wood. But they, they take that, they salvage it, they recondition it and they use it in high-end homes. And they actually um, pay quite a bit for the wood, but then they are thus compensated by some of these high-end places that want this, you know, original wood that you really can't mm-hmm. even get anymore. Well, it's it's old growth wood, right? Which is yeah, a lot more exactly. durable and it lasts a lot longer. And I learned this when I bought a house built in the 1800s. And apparently houses built a long time ago are very durable because of the wood that they're used, that's used um, and for its structure, where whereas new houses are typically not going to be old growth wood. It's going to be a lot weaker than the wood that was used a hundred years ago and beyond. Yeah. No, there's definitely when, when the wood grows slow over a long period of time, it has a, a thickness, a, um, like the density. Well, the density of it is a lot greater, but it's also has a certain like tensile resistance within it Hmm. that is just makes it stronger, more durable wood. Hmm. Um, when you grow wood like really, really fast, you it becomes um, more flaccid. It becomes like flimsier in a sense because it hasn't had that density. Might be a good word, but it hasn't thickened up and had those uh, those kind of molecular bonds in the wood given time to grow and mature. Yeah, like it's it more of a solid compared to like young growth yes. wood. I, I wonder if that yeah. also if wood that we see today is more susceptible to moisture and mold as well 
Um, I haven't looked into that, but I that just that's what that immediately makes me think of. Well, I know a lot of the building materials with the glues and the things that they use to compensate for that lack of tensile strength, you know, make up for it in the short term. I mean, you you can you can put a beam in of, you know, chipboard and basically assemble glued product and get initially a very good, you know, very strong kind of replacement for the old style wood. But the problem is, is that the glues decompose over time. They're not, they, they lack that longevity strength that the old growth stuff does. And so um, they're not as, they're not as resilient. They're not as strong. And I'm sure there's going to be like a, a, a manufacturer of this that's going to call up and yell at us for saying this. I, I've seen, you know, many, many, many instances where old school plywood, old school boards are, you know, subjected to nature and you come back a decade later and they're still there. And I've seen the opposite where the new stuff is exposed to nature and in six months there's nothing left, right? Like it's falling apart. Um, it's just the nature of, of how we build things today. I think the open question is that sheetrock palace, when it goes bad, you know, the stuff built in like 1995 or the split entry home from the 1980s, how much value does that have for salvage? I don't know. Abby, maybe we can get you a shag, shag carpet or something. <laughs> I'm green. Sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds great. It'd be interesting to like find somebody who is like an expert on this topic and dig into it a little bit more because it's, again, it's not something that we've touched on and I'm out of my depth on the topic, but it seems like it is this, this critical piece of being more sustainable about how we're building and rebuilding and salvaging places that do fail and really with materials that should be put to a new use. Um, so I hope we can talk well, about this more. Well, let me recommend a book. Steve Mozan's The Original Green is one of like the greatest books that I've read. But on this topic in particular, he's really, really strong. And he talks a lot about building materials and just old versus new. And you can think of like um, vinyl siding. You know, vinyl siding is stronger, more resilient, all this stuff than old school siding for the first five years, 10 years. But then when vinyl siding fails, it's not repairable. It, it, you have to replace the entire thing. And it will eventually fail. And the old stuff can be maintained. It can be stripped off and redone. It can be brought back up to, uh, to, to almost new. I mean, it, it will endure a long, long, long time. So I'd recommend The Original Green to people. It is one of, it's one of the books that I always recommend if you want to think like a Strong Towns advocate. Um, the Original Green by Steve Mozan. You you can't go wrong. It's just a brilliant set of insights. Well, we will leave it there. But before we finish today, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of this show where we can share anything that we have been reading, watching, listening to, anything we've been up to these days. So, Chuck, I will pass it to you. What have you been up to? Well, this week I drove to Thunder Bay, Ontario and back, which is six hours roughly each direction. So I decided I'm going to start a brand new audio book. I was listening to this book called An Immense World by Ed Young. And the subtitle is How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. This is exactly the book I was hoping for. It is utterly fascinating. Just the idea that 
I mean, he talks about all the different senses that we have and how, I mean, I think we all recognize like bats see things in different ways than we do, right? They're using sonar and what have you. But he talks about dogs and how dogs' sense of smell is so keen and their sense of sight is so much duller than ours and how they really use smell in this way that, you know, we, we think well, this is just a stronger version of our nose, but no, it's like a very three-dimensional three or multi-dimensional sense that they have, that they use smell for. One of the things that blew my mind was this idea that there are birds that have uh, more cones in their eyes than we do and have their rods are longer. And so they see essentially more color than we do. Um, they will see the infrared spectrum and so they actually invented words for this. Uh, we can't see. I think one of the words was plurple. You know, it's not blue. It's not red. It's kind of a mixture of them, but yet it has infrared light wave to it. So they're actually seeing things in the world that you and I will never see and never perceive because our eyes are not this way. And when you, when you go through this book, you, what you start to recognize is that the world around us, we perceive and we understand in human terms. And we kind of, in our own arrogant way, define the world in the way that we perceive it. But perception is an evolved condition. Um, it's not a representative of reality. In other words, reality didn't unfold because we perceive it. We perceive a tiny sliver of reality and we understand it on our terms. Um, but it certainly doesn't define all of reality and how much existence is out there that we just simply are incapable of, of perceiving. Someone who can't hear uh, is tone deaf, does not hear a range of tones. Someone who is not tone deaf will hear a range of tones. But humans are tone deaf or deaf in multiple dimensions to all kinds of things that animals can sense. That yeah, we just it makes never me heard. think of echolocation. We don't, we're not sensing that yeah. either. No. And our senses of, our sense of touch, our sense of taste, our sense of uh, smell are also vastly different. Squirrels, I'll look outside in the winter and I'll see a squirrel and I'll be like, damn, that squirrel's got to be cold because it's cold out. And I know that if I was outside and it's, 20 degrees out, I would be feeling some pain because of the cold. Well, squirrels don't feel pain at 20 degrees. And it's not that they, they're incapable of feeling pain. It's just that that is a temperature in which they don't feel pain. Just like, you know, 65 degrees is a temperature that you don't feel pain. Their pain adjusters have evolved and changed to be different than ours because a squirrel at 20 degrees is just fine. A human outside at 20 degrees is not just fine. And so you feel pain at 20 degrees. Hmm. You're like, oh, okay, that that makes a lot of sense. Well, so, you've sold me on this I, book. <laughs> yeah, it's, you've it's sold me. It's one of those continual like mind, like you're just in awe of what is around you. And so, you know, the title, An Immense World, is I think really sums up the experience of of listening to this book is you 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 are humbled into how tiny the world that you've constructed actually is. I wonder if it would change my perspective on the dog music that I leave running when I go to work 
I have like <laughs> YouTube has uh, live music for dogs and it play, you know, it'll just keep going on and on and on all day until I get home. And they seem to like it, the dog and the cat. I, I actually was um, originally I was doing dog TV, which is like squirrels and birds, just like H, you know, really high quality video of various animals doing things. But the cat started trying to knock the TV over and um, had to switch to music. So I wonder if it would change my perspective on like how do I've been wondering how do they even perceive music? What do they think about this music? Yeah. Well, I, I, my wife and I were walking the dog last night and I was talking to her a little bit about this book. And I said, you know, when you tug on the dog, when he stops to smell something and you tug on him, you're actually being kind of cruel because this is his, he's not see dogs have two cones. They see their two rods. Two, two cones, I'm sorry, in their eyes, they see blue and green. Um, they're not seeing reds, yellows. They're not seeing that perspective. So their world is like visually a little more dull than ours. They don't see as far. Um, but their sense of smell is astounding. And they can smell things that were there days ago. And so for them, like we look out and we're like, wow, what a beautiful world we can see. Um, they smell and they're like, wow, what an interesting world. Um, when you tug on the dog, you're kind of denying them the capacity to be curious. And so I'm like, let's let him, let, you need to let him be a little bit curious. Cause this yeah, is Yeah. And I do that sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I need to not, I need to let her smell the things she wants to smell. Well, that's the equivalent of you seeing, you know, your, yeah. your, your visual acuity is that much superior to her visual acuity her sense of smell is that much greater and maybe even more than your sense of smell. So mm. let them explore. Be curious. Well, yeah, yeah. A new perspective today. Thanks, Chuck. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so for my down zone, I don't have anything substantial to share other than the fact that it's basically springtime here in Kansas City. <laughs> uh, I know you can't relate because you live further up north, but um, we've actually been getting some nicer weather. This week's been not not great, but we've just been getting a ton of rain and trees are starting to bloom, um, or not bloom rather, but have kind of that additional growth. Yeah, bud. Um, So really, really, yeah, I'm I'm just, I'm really excited and I have started uh, like a spring cleaning rampage. And I, <laughs> is that what we should call this? A, it's a spring cleaning rampage. Spring cleaning and rampage. Mm-hmm. I am donating a ton of stuff. I am cleaning things nice. out. I am about to repaint my stairs. I'm going to restain the deck. I have a whole list of things that I'm just like waiting for it to stop raining and the weather to get a little bit nicer to start. You know, I hate the winter. So I'm, I'm, I yeah. can't do any more puzzles, so I'm ready to start doing something else. Well, there's nothing more liberating than being able to open the doors, open the windows, go outside. I, I like to talk to the buds on the tree. I'm like, oh, you're doing so good. Keep coming. Like, you got yeah. this. <laughs> you got this. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, you got this. Come on, <laughs> let's do it. Um, we we are uh, at least four weeks away from that, maybe longer. But um, you're giving me optimism, Abby. You're giving me hope. Yeah, just hang on a little bit longer. The ice is slowly melting, <laughs> <laughs> to quote George Harrison. <laughs> right. 
All right. Well, thanks, Chuck, for joining me today. I think we will end it there. And thanks, everybody, for listening to another episode of UpZoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck. Let me show you-